Hello everyone, I'm Paul Botts. And I'm Kelsey Meyer-Shockle. We're both executive coaches with Good Leadership Enterprises, and this is the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. You can find more about Good Leadership Enterprises at goodleadership.com. We are recording this podcast in the aspiration suite of our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we coach leaders on how to grow their businesses with goodness. Today we're featuring the appearance of Phil McCoy from the Good Leadership Breakfast that happened just this morning. It's a monthly leadership development event that Paul started back in 2009. So today it was a really special one as we're in the 10th season. Yeah, you know, our 76th meeting today. And the room was just absolutely jam-packed. We couldn't have had any more people in that room today. It was really, really exciting. And, you know, I suppose it's because Phil McCoy, he's got a reputation. He's been at Target. He's at United Health Group. He's been in this community for a long, long time. And he's just one of those energetic guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was fantastic. His his energy totally filled the room. I was really impressed by his story. I'd had the opportunity to sit next to him at a different breakfast and knew of him, like you said, a lot of people in the room did, but I didn't know anything about his background. So it was really cool to hear. Yeah, and I was fascinated just by his intensity that also comes with this homespun sort of authenticity, a very interesting mix, yeah. uh, for especially for a high-powered corporate executive. So for first-time listeners, the strategy for this episode is what we call a Monday morning quarterback. In other words, we're going to play some of the highlights from Phil's talk this morning and then share our observations, even criticisms, based on our experiences as executive coaches. So let's get started right at the very beginning of his talk. He just wanted immediately to explain how he grew up and is definitely not the typical story. I'm not a native Minnesotan. Even though try as hard as I might, I still elongate my O's. Um... (laughs) I grew up in rural Jamaica. I grew up in a little village called Fairfield. And to give you a sense of just how rural this is, when I meet other Jamaicans, and I always get excited when I meet other Jamaicans, and I tell them where I'm from, if I tell them I'm from Fairfield, about 90% of them have no idea where that is. Um, And to give you a sense of where it is, uh, uh, Fairfield is about eight miles outside of a town called Mandeville. And Mandeville sits in the middle of the island Uh, in a parish called Manchester Parish, and it's primarily an agricultural parish. Um, I grew up the son of a country pastor and an English teacher. My mom was an English teacher, and she was from another island in the Caribbean, St. Kitts. And I grew up in this rural area for the first 10 years of my life. Uh, Got an older brother and a younger sister. Uh, First 10 years of my life, running around shirtless most of the time, running around barefoot, most of the time, profoundly carefree. But I also went to school in the city center in the town of Mandeville, um, where I was around, you know, that was a big city for me. So um, I went to school surrounded by uh, other kids, kids of expats at the school where my mom taught. I moved to the US when I was 12 years old. And this is probably one of the one of the biggest changes in my life when I moved here at 12, we moved to uh, city of Decatur, which is right outside of Atlanta. Um, and we moved because my dad was coming to attend seminary and the plan was for him to come and attend seminary and then we would, we would all move back. And we made a decision while he was in seminary to stay here. My mom uh, chose to become an English teacher um, at our high school. Um, and we decided to stay. And my dad moved back to Jamaica for a period of time to fulfill his obligation teaching at the, the seminary in Jamaica. And it was interesting. There are a lot of 
things that I went through in that period of time that really shaped how I thought about myself and thought about life later on. You know, a few things are um, coming from a solidly middle-class background uh, to the U.S. and moving here and experiencing things like um, free and reduced lunch at school because the income level of my parents wasn't that high. My dad essentially was a student for a period of time. My mom wasn't working at all. Um, moving here and experiencing the generosity of others. Um, at Columbia Presbyterian Seminary in, uh, in, in Decatur, they have uh, an area or a, a, a place called Closed Closet. And what Closed Closet is, it's um, all the clothes are donated, right? And as they bring in students and families from other parts of the world, they brought in, um, you can go shop at Closed Closet. And that's where, I mean, I didn't need a winter coat. Don't, I mean, I live in Minnesota now, but I thought Atlanta was cold. Um, and you would, you would go and you would, you would shop for clothes and you would receive from the generosity of others to put clothes on your back. Okay, so Kelsey, have you ever been to Jamaica? I have. Yeah, me too. And one time I took a three-hour car ride from one side to the other, and I thought to myself, how can people live here? <laughs> well, I will be honest. When he said, you know, you can't find people from Jamaica don't know where Fairfield is, I yeah. believe is what it was. I tried to Google it and couldn't. Google Maps didn't have it either, Yeah, so we're talking, he, this kid kind of grew up in the jungle. Well, it's I mean, rural. It sounds like farmland. But it was, I mean, I just had this immediate heart connection to him because I'm like, my mom grew up rural. My dad was is a pastor, you know? Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah. so what were you doing <laughs> when you were 12 years old? Yeah. Sometimes, growing up with a pastor as a father, huh? <laughs> there are some there are some definitely relatable things. Sometimes running around barefoot, not all the time. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was so, it really was. It was an instant heart connection. Like, oh, I, I get part of who you are in a whole different way. Well, we've had a lot of different people. We've done 76 of these good leadership breakfasts. And some people grow up in very simple, humble ways. But this guy grew up in a simple, humble way, which is really exciting then to see where he took this. So let's just dive right back in. He's going to describe his schooling. I went to high school in Atlanta, and then I went to college in Lexington, Virginia, Washington and Lee University, if any of you guys have heard of that. And then immediately following college, I went to graduate school at the University of Denver, um, where I got a degree in international affairs and my specializations, international uh, economics. Um, and you think about that background, my major in, in college was political science, working for a massive company that probably comes in useful now. But um, uh, you know, how does a guy who has a bachelor's in political science and a master's in international affairs end up in technology. And I didn't really give a rip about technology when I was coming through school. Um, what I knew was I had a passion for working internationally. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. I'm also profoundly impatient. Um, and so as I was sitting in graduate school trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, and trying to figure out how I could get to that goal of working internationally as fast as possible, I decided that the fastest path would be consulting. You know, I considered a number of the big companies, right? You know, I think about companies here in town, Cargill, General Mills, you know, 3M, these massive multinational companies. And I knew those were all great options for working internationally. But I wasn't really willing to toil for 10 to 12 years to get to middle management, to get a plum international assignment. 
And so I interviewed with Anderson Consulting when I was in, in graduate school. And one of the things that they talked about, and really, I mean, it was a sell job, but it proved out correctly for me, was you go where the work is, right? And, you know, and if, if you've got the right skills and, you know, that job's in, you know, I don't know, pick your country, you'll go where the work is. Um, and that proved to be true. And I remember when I joined uh, Anderson Consulting and, you know, you do your three-week coding, you know, you learn to code. Like, what am I doing here? And then what I found was that I loved this notion of shaping outcomes, right? I loved not necessarily the technology itself, but I love this idea of listening to people, listening to clients, listening to business partners, and trying to figure out how to go solve something. And that excited me. Okay, so Paul, I am still not clear on how he got into tech because that wasn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get the transition. Do you yeah, know he, more? Yeah, he skipped over a whole bunch of stuff there, but the assignment had to do with the technology implementation. And he ended up being one of the few people that could actually explain it and advance it from a project management standpoint. Mm -hmm. And he became really interested in how much the potential of the project could really change the world and shape outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, we know this, that in the environment of speaking with an 18-minute time clock, like a TED Talk, sometimes people leave things out in the story. Yeah. And so that's what he did today. That's great to fill in some of the blanks. And I'm sure there are, the, there are so many more interesting things that he shared with us. So Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that I took out of that is that I am a parent of three kids who went to liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. And you never really know what path that's going to be. And I heard this guy <laughs> saying he studied poli-sci yeah. and then he studied international affairs. He ended up in IT. So there. So you're fine with those bills. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so my favorite story is the one coming next. He's going to talk about his dad. Let's listen to that. You know, I learned to serve from my dad, right? Um, my dad was a country pastor. And if you think about where we lived, we lived about eight miles outside of Mandeville. There was no phone in our house. We didn't have a phone in our house until... Um, we moved to Kingston for a couple of years. Um, and so the electricity ran to our house. And so if you were between our house, the house and the church in town, you had electricity. But if you were past the church, you had no electricity. And my dad was more than a pastor. He, was, he had a car, right, which not many people in our community had cars. And I have these memories of a kid of the late night knock at the door, right? And my dad getting up in his tidy whities and his, you know, and, and, his, and his white undershirt and going to the door. Um, and I always remember the urgency of the knock and the urgency of my dad getting up. And he was not only a pastor, he was an ambulance, right? I, mean, I don't know how many people my dad probably drove to hospital for, you know, births or some other emergency. Um, he was a policeman at times, right? Negotiating issues that had happened in, in the community. You know, I learned a lot about what it means to work hard, also from my experience growing up in Jamaica. You know, if you're a country church, you make money from the agriculture around you, and you generally have a caretaker that actually does the work managing the church's farm. And there was a man that I, you know, he literally only maybe passed away three or four years ago. He would have been well in his 90s when he passed away. His name was Mass Egbert. Probably a grade school education, I would bet. Um, had nine children. All of his nine children have gone to college um, and have gone on to great things. But what I loved about him was I've never seen anyone work so hard. Back-breaking labor in fields in the hot Jamaican country sun. Um, and what I loved is how he drove his children to be more than what he was. 
the third huge influence in terms of shaping how I think about my, uh, my leadership was um, someone who I've actually never met. It's my grandfather, uh, you know, James Claxton. Um, and James Claxton lived in St. Kitts, where my mom was from. And this notion of legacy, this notion of influence. So if you go to St. Kitts, and more and more people are going to St. Kitts now because it's becoming a big cruise destination, um, there are streets named after my, my grandfather. And when I'm in St. Kitts and people ask me who I am, I actually don't use my dad's last name. I use my mom's last name, Claxton. Um, and it resonates. And I, I didn't understand or appreciate what that meant until I became an adult. But the notion that you can have an influence in a country, a small country, but you can have an influence in a country and on people that, that survives for such a long time. And it makes me think a lot about what's the impact that I leave on the people that I'm around every day? And what's the impact that I leave on the places where I work? And what will people say about me long after I'm gone? And that sticks with me and, and it drives the way I behave and the way I treat people. So I have a picture in mind of his dad and of Mass and of grandfather. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how that vivid imagery comes alive. Grandfather, probably the most for me. I grew up, um, my grandfather had a huge impact on me. My dad was a veterinarian. He was gone 24-7 in the summertime. I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. He was kind of the mayor of a very small town. He, was, he owned the newspaper. He also owned the funeral home. And when I would walk around, I'd say, yeah, I'm Ken Hunter's grandson. Mm-hmm. And it was like they gave me the keys to the town. And uh, I really resonated with that. And it's, it's amazing how the, the behaviors and the value systems of your forefathers can really have a big impact on how you lead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you, that just clicked for me something else um, around epigenetics. They're finding more and more that actually those things are, can be even passed down genetically, which is crazy. Um, I know. I love that story being like, I want to know more about your grandfather. What did he do? Tell me. Like I could sit down to coffee and hear all about it. Um, but it is so powerful to think of the legacy that you might leave. Um, and of course, like you said, the stories about his dad and, and the caretaker, Mass, I believe, just, y- you, yeah, you can understand how he was shaped and how he shows up today as a leader because of them. Well, let's jump right ahead into how he describes his role at United Healthcare. So what do I do today? I'm the CIO for United Healthcare, one of the two segments of United Health Group, the largest health and well-being company here in, uh, here in the US, in the world, actually. When I joined, I knew that I wanted to be in healthcare. And when I left Target, I went from Accenture to Target to AMIA. Um, when, I, when I left Target back in 2014, I knew I wanted to work in healthcare. This is a healthcare town. And I knew that my digital background and my big consulting background would play in healthcare. And eventually I ended up there. And people say, why do you do what you do? What excites you about it? It's the mission. Right, United Health Group's mission is to help people be healthier and to help the health system work better for everyone. And I'm all in, I'm all bought in. Because I believe that healthcare is, is the most pressing issue in our country today. And I, it pains me to think about when you hear th- uh, statements such as, the biggest determinant of your health outcomes is your zip code, right? Um, and I think about my background and how I grew up I think about the generosity of others, the generosity of services that I've received over the course of my life. And I think that, that our responsibility as a company is to make sure that we make healthcare available, accessible, and affordable to everyone in this country. 
that statement is so powerful. And just the the idea that your zip code informs what your healthcare experience will be. And it might be something that we intuitively know, but it feels so wrong. And you can see him him saying that and leading with that. You, that's what an inspiring leader looks like. Yeah, and what what I heard there is that I forgot to insert the definition of goodness before we got this whole conversation started. So I'm going to put it here. Goodness is when people thrive together in a culture of encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. So it's also built on four values, excellence, generosity, fairness, and positivity. So if you live in a place where no one's accountable to deliver health care good quality health care affordably in a, in a specific zip code, that's a violation of basic human fairness. Mm-hmm. And it was just so interesting how he encapsulated all that in one basic statement. And I think um, you're not really a very, uh, you're not really a caring human being if you didn't, if you weren't moved by that statement, that the number one determination about the quality of health care you're going to get is your zip code. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of work to do, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He keeps talking a bit about some of his work. So do you want to jump back in there? Yep. He has a funny reference here. Let's go right here. Your experience matters. Your experience with us as a patient or as a member, and then the experience of all of the providers and health systems that we partner with, with us as a partner in helping make people healthier. You know, there's a statement that we say a lot around, um, no one cares how big we are, right? No one does, right? And I think for a long time, you know, we would talk certainly with investors about our size, and, and that's cool and all, but nobody cares how big we are. You know, a mom where it's 7 a.m. who has a 9 a.m. meeting and just wants to figure out a way to get a kid's ear looked at quickly doesn't care how big we are if we can't give her the right information at her fingertips to go make the right choices. You know, a doctor who is trying to get an authorization for a critical piece of care for one of their patients doesn't care how big we are, right? And I think that part of my role as a technologist inside of United Healthcare is to try and help us deliver on that mission. And I think technology plays an absolutely critical role in delivering on that. And I think it's also good, um, you know, when I joined United Healthcare, I spent a lot of time at Target, another big company. Um, And within maybe a week or two, you know, I had the same realization that someone else famous did as well, which is healthcare is really complicated, right? Um, and I would say things like, man, we're not selling socks here, right? It's an incredibly complicated business where the tenure and the knowledge of the people that we work with is incredibly valuable. But at the same time, I hope that I bring a new perspective as an outsider, as someone with a more consumer retail background to say, hey, you wouldn't accept that from a a store in which you shopped. You wouldn't accept that from your bank. And so why do we accept those types of experiences in healthcare? And I think technology plays a critical, pretty critical role in that. Okay, so we're not selling socks. I spent time at Target as well. So Phil and I actually had an overlap. And we used to say, and I think other organizations say this too, we're not saving lives. Like, let's take it down a notch. We're not saving lives here. He can't say that anymore. No, so this he is can't his, say that. This is his reverse on that. Yes. We're not selling socks. Yeah, I, this is very vivid. I think uh, holding the healthcare system to the same standard as we hold retail and banking, I mean, uh, what a brilliant idea. Yeah, as a consumer, I love it. So eventually... He gets around to how he thinks about his leadership. And so I think we should, it's time for us to listen to that. 
you know, so I have a few principles um, that I think guide me and drive me. The, the first one is work hard, really hard, right? Work hard, really hard. And, you know, I have a 17-year-old uh, uh, boy. I have five kids, a son who's 17, a daughter who's 15, a daughter who's 13, a daughter who's 11, um, a daughter who's 7, and a St. Paul wife. I forgot to mention that earlier. It's on tape. I got it in. Um, uh, and nothing bugs me more than not working hard. I mean, I literally get enraged when Max has one job, it's trash and recycling, it's Monday nights, pickups Tuesday morning. Like, come on, it's one job, man. Nail it, right? You know? And, you know, Amy brokers these arguments between us because I get irritated if he forgets one of the trash in the bathroom. Like, come on, man, it's one job, nail it. So work hard, really, really hard. Um, you know, another one, of my, another one of my principles is the notion that you gotta, you gotta feel people. Like, I mean, like you really gotta, you gotta feel them. You gotta feel the people that you work with. You gotta understand their backgrounds. You've gotta understand what motivates them in the moment. Um, it's always interesting when I meet with people, you know, you know uh, get to know, or um, how, like, tell me your story. Like, wh where'd you come from? You know, where in the cities do you live? You know, do you like to fish? And if the answer is yes, that's a good thing. Right? You know, I, th I think you've really got to feel people, as, feel people as a leader. And if you don't, you're not going to be effective. You know, and so I was introduced to this concept of goodness, you know, long after, I mean, deep into my career. I mean, Paul, what we met a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, and introduced to this concept. And then, you know, as I, I've sat and I've read the book and I've been at a few breakfasts, I'm like, well, what, is, what does goodness mean? What does it mean to me? Right? And I think the first one's humility. Um, that's why this makes me so nervous. I don't like talking about myself. I like to lead from behind. Um, especially when things are going well, I like to lead from behind. When it hits the fan, I'll be in front and I'll take the daggers from my team. But I think humility is, um, humility is when I think of goodness, humility really is the first one. Empathy, when I talk about feeling people. Um, and empathy is so hard. It's hard to feel people, especially as you become an executive. And especially when you have to make really hard decisions. Um, some of the hardest things for me are when I have to manage performance and make decisions around whether we have the right people on the bus or not the right people on the bus. And I'd, I'd like to think that my focus on feeling people actually makes me more effective at managing performance. Um, um, and then the, the, the last part when I think about what goodness means to me is, um, I think if you lead with people, results follow. Um, and if you talk about a, a playbook and a play that I've run, and I've run it my entire career, and it has never let me down. And I think if you lead with people first, results will follow. Well, that's a pretty powerful message to hear. If you lead with people, results will follow, coming from the CIO of a huge organization. Yeah, and it's an organization that doesn't have the best reputation for always taking care of their employees. There's been this wave that's gone through, and they've done a fantastic job at building a stronger culture of care and concern for the workers. Mm -hmm. It's always been very focused on the patients and the providers, but I'm, you know, I've been a part of some of the cultural journey over there and I can, you know, you can feel it. 
there are more and more people like Phil McCoy that are really driving the agenda in that healthcare. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And just such a, it just powerful, real, true. The other thing I have to say is uh, at my table this morning, we talked a little bit about the work hard, really hard. If you have one job, nail it. Uh, there are some moms of teens there who are writing that down word for word. Oh, yeah, I know. I <laughs> forgot to take out the garbage many times when I was a kid. <laughs> So part of the format of the breakfast is that at, after the speaker concludes, Paul comes up, yay, and does some questions, asks a few questions of the speaker so we can learn more about what he or she said, um, the things that the audience and maybe you as the listeners are curious about. Yeah, and this was kind of interesting because I described him when I introduced him to the audience as a guy who's really intense. Well, it bared out that way because he said, hey, I don't want to sit on that stool. Can you and I just stand up there? I just don't like to sit. And <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so 76 breakfasts, the first time I've ever stood and did the interview. So here we go. So I'm asking this question on behalf of your wife, your children, and your people on your team. Yeah. You said to us that you are profoundly impatient. <laughs> oh. How does that work for and against you? Oh, so the good thing is Amy's not here to rebut anything I say, so. Um, yeah, but I'm sure she uses the internet, so we're yeah, gonna figure this yeah. out. Um, <laughs> so it, uh, it works for me in the sense of I refuse to accept mediocrity, right? It, it works for me in having high standards. It works for me, and, and those high standards are not just about work. Those high standards are for- Garbage. Um, for, yeah. exactly. Yeah, right. that's right. One job, one job, <laughs> one job. Um, but it, I, I make it a priority to find ways to spend time with my family. I am no one's example of work-life balance, and what I mean by that is my work-life balance goes like that, right? And so I take the time to make it a priority to spend time with my family. Um, they ultimately have the vote, but I think I do a pretty good job of it, even though there may be periods where I'm gone for a while, and then I'm home, and everything's off, and I am present. Um, where it works against me, and I'll give you a team and a family one as well, um, my team will tell you that I frustrate easily. Um, and I think I frustrate easily because I have high standards for them. And I sometimes have to gut check myself and count to 10 and breathe to make sure that I respond in a way that is productive and constructive, even when what I really want to say is probably something not really nice, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think it works against me there. Um, I think it works against me with my kids, especially my son, who is much like me in many respects. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard from all six members in my family that they don't work for me. Um, and. Uh, and it's usually not said nicely. Um, you know, you say that to your kids, say it nicely. That one doesn't come out nicely ever. Um, and so, I don't know, there's pros and cons to it. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I think we have to probe this one farther. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, any time you hear somebody, want one of your principles in life is work hard, really hard, and then you say five kids? I mean, how does that work? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming these are fantastic children. But how do you, what is your equation in that? How do you make it work? Um, I think I make it work imperfectly, to be, to be brutally honest. But I, um, I've had certain priorities over the years. I um, always take my kids' birthdays off. I uh, always take them to breakfast on their birthdays. Um, and so I've set these rules. And to be perfectly honest, in my job today, it gets a lot harder. So May 21st, Stella will turn 16. May 21st, I'm in California for a meeting. And I told her that a month ago. 
And I've probably heard about it 15 times since. Mm -hmm. And so how do I, as they get older and as I grow in my career and I'm unable to deliver on some of those commitments when they were little, how do I have a conversation with them, a relationship conversation with them around, <coughs> I work really hard and so it means that some of the things that I may have committed to you before, I can't deliver on now, but here's how I'm gonna make it up to you. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I guess I negotiate, mm -hmm. I, I discuss, mm -hmm. we all do. I, um, I uh, do my best to um, frankly be humble with my children, right? And be vulnerable with my children and let them know that I, uh, like I'm not perfect either, mm -hmm. right? You know, and I think actually that's a really good message for, like you should apologize to your kids, mm -hmm. right? And it's a really good message to them that you are, that you are fallible as well. And I think that's a great message for kids to have as they grow up is like, like it's okay to be fallible. Okay, Kelsey, you have one child and one on the way. So I guess you're listening with all this wisdom going, wow, how am I going to do that? So I'm on the other end. You know, yeah. I have three children of which the two are married. One still lives with us. She's in graduate school. And um, two of the three are actually involved in our business in a tangible way. And I, I think to myself, wow, I still have some of that stuff going on. I travel a lot. I miss a lot of things. And it is a really delicate balance when, you know, he made the roller coaster sign with his hand when he said my work-life balance goes like that. Um, it's part of the reason why we just don't talk about work-life balance around here. We talk about blending. Mm -hmm. We blend our personal and professional lives in ways that are as satisfying as we possibly can. So I, I just thought he was in very, very sincere and he was open to me probing on some things that, you know, are a little sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I loved his humility in it and how he talked about apologizing to his kids and how he just talked about not doing it perfectly. I, yeah, part the part of me, maybe it's the mom, maybe it's the coach in me, but I wanted to be like, well, what does the negotiating look like on the work side? Because uh -huh. I'm hearing it on the family side. Uh -huh. um, but, but you can't, you know, you can't fault someone for being authentic and showing up because we all have that. We all have it. And it does get harder the bigger the job you get. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I ask the same exact question every time. So let's just jump right to this um, at the end of the interview. I traditionally ask this question as the last question to everybody who speaks here. And that is to please tell us when you knew a specific story or a specific moment when you knew for sure that goodness pays. Yeah. Well, it's a retroactive story because I just learned about the goodness concept. But when I think about what I've done in my career, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was at Target, I led the program to get our digital platforms off of Amazon and bring them in-house. Um, the hardest thing I've ever done, the most fun I've ever had professionally. And one of the things that I did was I installed what was called the countdown clock. And there's some Target people in here who might remember that, where I essentially installed this massive digital clock on our floor here in the US and on our floor in our India location that counted down to when our contract with Amazon was going to end and when we needed to be live. And some of my peers came up to me and said, that's the meanest thing you could have done. Think about the pressure that you've put on your team. And I actually think it was the exact opposite and it proved to be the, the exact opposite. The first one is I, I, I communicated it in a way that we're all in it together and we're all shooting towards that goal, right? I communicated it in a way of um, this is about motivation and focus, right? And we're not gonna worry about anything else except that countdown. And when people walked in every morning and saw that focus, and then in the course of what we did, everything of what we did, 
we did it together. We, we worked with our employees on the program in a way where we were all about that singular goal. We worked with our vendors on the program in a way that we were all about that singular goal. Um, and we made it fun, right? We, 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 we used the clock as a source of fun as well. And so in that moment, I realized you can do something really hard, but if you have singular focus on a goal, if you have the right camaraderie and the right support for your teams, especially a global team here in the US and in India, you can accomplish great things. There are many people who bet against us on that project um, and many people that didn't think we'd deliver what we needed to deliver and we did it and we did it successfully. And I would argue that I don't think Target would be in the position that it is today mm -hmm. as a, a great multi-channel amazing retailer if we hadn't had the singular focus to get that project done back in uh, 2011. Kelsey? Well, I happen to be one of the people who was at Target at the time of the countdown clock, and I, I totally remembered. I was not in that world, so it was one of those things like, that's intense. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of fits yeah. the theme of Phil, but to hear him explain it, um, as a coach, it just strikes me how powerful the focus element of it is. Because we see that so often with our leaders that there's so many things going on mm -hmm. in any given day. And to be able to really rally your team around one important thing is, is really hard to do. Yeah, what it brings to mind for me is the definition of goodness. Goodness is when people thrive together. Obviously, lots and lots of people thrive together under that deadline. In a culture of encouragement, we can do it. Mm -hmm. Accountability, come on, we're all in this together. And positive teamwork. There's no way they could have gotten that done if they wouldn't have driven it by positivity. And frequently we work on technology implementations where it's not going well because everybody's being negative and kind of criticizing each other and that just doesn't work. Right. So one of the parts of this podcast is that we always finish with an actionable insight, sort of a carpe diem moment. What, what did you learn from Phil McCoy that you really found some insight in? Yeah, I think that the, the piece that I'm taking away, the action that I want to take is to really think about legacy. And, and looking back, think about legacy. What he talked about with his grandfather, I actually want to spend just my drive home even, thinking about my grandparents and the different pieces, the the desire to learn and grow that I see from my grandpa, the, the sense of humor I see from my grandma. I want to think about those things and bring them into my life more meaningfully. Yeah, mine was completely different. I He and I are a lot alike. I am profoundly impatient. And when I'm <laughs> at my worst, I just can't, nothing can be done fast enough. And in addition to that, I, I can be hypercritical. Mm. And to hear him say that he counts to 10, takes a deep breath, thinks about it from other perspectives, um, you know what, I can learn that lesson every single day. <laughs> so you know what, I'm being as vulnerable as he is. I'm going to embrace and learn how to deal with my profoundly impatient genes. <laughs> well, that's great. Okay, so what is the final phrase that we want everyone to remember when they spend time with us? Well, it's goodness pays. Yes, goodness pays. And from Phil? Goodness pays. Thank you so much for investing the time in the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast, whether you're exercising, driving, or on an airplane, whatever. We appreciate you making the space in your life for us, and we hope that you do everything you can to radiate goodness because goodness pays. <laughs>